holiday season. Um, hopefully many of you were able to spend time with family or friends. And uh, Alicia and I, we had the privilege of spending uh, time with family and friends, both here in Leesburg, but also in uh, Pennsylvania. So I, I thank you for your prayers. Although there was snow, we got uh, to and from safely. And I see many of you here today, so I know that you're safe as well, too. So that is good news. Um, but before we jump into our uh, text this morning, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, we're going to pray as he um, helps us teach a few things about the keys of the kingdom of God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are good. You are faithful to us, Lord, all the days of our lives. Lord, there are many things, Lord, in your scriptures that you want to teach us. Lord, there are things in your scriptures, Lord, that bring life, Lord, to our dead hearts, that change us, Lord, that change the way we live, Lord, the way we change, the way we see, Lord, this world. Lord, your word awakens our hearts. It softens them to see, Lord, the needs around us, to care for those. Lord, but most importantly, your word, it proclaims, Lord, who you are, that you are Jesus Christ, Lord, Son of the living God. Lord, and your word proclaims that with power and mighty, like no other book in the world. Lord, it is a pleasure, Lord, to be able to learn from you, to learn from your scriptures. Because these words, Lord, these questions, these instructions that you have for us, they are valuable, more valuable than anything, Lord that we possibly could have. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that, Lord, we get to learn from it and that we get to tell others about it too. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the book of Matthew. We've been going through, and we are now up to chapter 16. Um, and as we get started this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses specifically 13 through 20. And as we're going to see in these verses, 13 through 20, we're going to see that the tables are going to be turned because we started our study in Matthew 16 last week looking at um, the first 12 verses where we saw Satan's disciples, which are the Pharisees and Sadducees, we see them testing Jesus. Well, how are they testing Jesus? They're asking Jesus to do all these signs and wonders. And now, in our passage, Jesus is going to be doing the testing, and he's going to test his own disciples, and he's going to do that by asking them two very important questions. But the difference between these two, these two groups, is that Jesus, in his test, it's for his disciples, and it's for the purpose of confession. Jesus tests his disciples with questions for the purpose of developing conviction, Whereas the Pharisees' test, it was simply just to raise questions and raise problems for both Jesus and his disciples. I want you to see that there's this contrast here that we're going to be looking at at the very beginning part of our passage. The contrast is that Jesus wants to know the true heart of his disciples, whereas the Pharisees, they simply want to drive a stake through the heart of Jesus and his disciples. There's a great difference. And the goals of these two, dis two distinct groups between what we learned a little bit last week and them testing Jesus and what we hear this morning, Jesus testing his disciples, the differences between these two could not be any further apart. And the reason I draw this contrast 
in the sermon. It's due because our scriptures draw this contrast in chapter 16. And this contrast is filtering through from last week's sermon, Matthew 16, verses 1 through 12. And it's now permeating to our first section in our text, which we're going to look at here in just a moment in verses 13 through 16. So Jesus is drawing a clear distinction between those who confess him as Lord and Savior and those who do not confess him as Lord and Savior. Those who receive the keys of the kingdom of God and also the instructions that come with these keys and those who do not receive the keys or the instructions. Jesus is sharpening his disciples, their hearts and their minds and their confessions for the days that lay ahead of them. Because as we know, there are many trials that lay ahead of the disciples. And Jesus is sharpening them before these trials come just around the corner. And honestly, church, we would do well to take notes, to listen, to learn, to perk up as well. Because there is a lot for us to learn in this passage. And there may be tough days ahead for you, for your families. Um, nobody honestly knows um, what tomorrow brings except God. But God has given us his word to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for the days that come. And he's going to walk with us through all those difficulties and trials, just like he does with our disciples here in this passage. And we have the chance to learn, and that's good news. But I also say, take a listen this morning, because Jesus chooses his words, he chooses his questions and his instructions wisely. So when he gives us instruction, it is good for us to learn and pay attention. So with your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 16, let's look at the first sermon point, and this is going to be titled, Key Questions. If you have your bulletin insert, you can also follow along in there. Key Questions, and we're, this is coming from verses 13 through 16. Let's look at these together. Matthew says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Now Jesus and his 12 disciples, they have just uh, left the region of Maganon, and they are now traveling to find solitude after the many healings um, of scores of people and after feeding thousands, right, like five and the four, and also after dealing with their favorite people, right, the Pharisees and Sadducees. I know they love dealing with them. They're now searching for a little bit of a uh, little R&R, &R, a little solitude, a little bit of rest. And now they have entered the remote northern village called Caesarea Philippi. And instead of plopping down to rest, right, which what I would do, probably many of us, Jesus takes this opportunity. He takes this opportunity to sharpen the challenge of the minds of his disciples. Though they are tired and weary, this is still a time to sharpen them and to challenge them. And that's what he does, because he wants to prepare them for the days that lie ahead, not only for Jesus, but for his followers. And Jesus begins teaching them. He opens up the dialogue by asking them two key questions. The two questions are, one, what are people saying about me? And two, who do you say that I am? Well, let's address, let's look at the first question together. 
first question, what are people essentially saying about me? Now, all the disciples, when Jesus asked this, they seem to all kind of chime in and answer, and they all say, well, you know, uh, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you're Elijah, and others think that maybe you're Jeremiah or maybe just one of the other prophets. Now, this is true because many people thought that Jesus was a prophet. Some thought that maybe he was a resurrected John the Baptist. Some maybe thought that he was the fulfillment of the Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 prophecy regarding Elijah. And Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So maybe people thought this was actually coming to life now. And there's others that thought, um, you know, maybe that Jesus was Jeremiah. All right. In the, an Old Testament Apocrypha book, uh, it's called Second Esdras. Second Esdras 2.18, there's a, a short prophecy that talks about Jeremiah coming back to help the Israelites. So maybe, maybe these people thought that he was one of these prophets that's come back, right? But what the disciples graciously left out after naming this kind of who's who's list of prophets was what also what other people were saying about Jesus. For many people, including like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought Jesus was a possibly a demon-possessed man. Maybe he was actually Satan incarnate himself, and that's how he was able to cast out demons, right? Or maybe he was just a good teacher. He was a good guy, a, a good rabbi of the time, like we kind of see in John 3 with Nicodemus approaching Jesus. So the popular opinions of the day about who Jesus was were these three things. Either Jesus was a prophet, he's Satan incarnate, he's demon-possessed, or three, Possibly he's a good teacher. So that's what people were also saying about him. But why would people be claiming any of these things about Jesus? Why would they be saying these things about this one man? Well, it's because Jesus was casting out demons. He's giving sight to the blind, speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, and he's creating food for thousands out of a few loaves of bread and a few fish. So people, you can see why they might be talking about him, right? This guy spoke with authority like none of you have ever spoken or anybody else you've ever heard. The kind of authority where he would claim things about him being the same as God. Nobody was doing this, but he was. He also claimed that he would take away the sins of his people. That's not something you hear a lot of people claiming today. Do you see many people doing these types of miracles? On an everyday basis, you see these things happening. You hear people claiming radical stuff like this. Probably not, right? So it's, a, so it's a good, you know, you can see that it's a good reason that these people might be talking about Jesus and coming up with different ideas about who he is. So we can see that Jesus' question to his own disciples is pretty legitimate because there's a lot of views about who Jesus was. And he asks them, well, what are people saying about me? But the reason Jesus asked his question to his disciples about what people were saying about him, it wasn't to get caught up on the latest gossip. It wasn't to boost his own ego. And it wasn't to get information that he didn't already know. It was to set up this contrast between those who do not confess Jesus as Lord and those who do confess Jesus as Lord. Because the contrast between these two is as great as those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. 
And that's one reason why Jesus presses his disciples just a little bit further with the second question he asks them. He says, now who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? As he asks his disciples. And Jesus speaking, I know what other people think about me, but what do you believe about me? And now this time, instead of all the disciples kind of chiming in and answering this question, Peter, the representative of the disciples, he, he spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter is saying, you're not just a prophet, just one of the prophets, or even one of the, the most you know, prestigious of the prophets. You weren't simply just a good teacher, a good rabbi. You are God's one and only son. You were there when the world began because you helped create it. And you are going to be there in the end because you are going to judge both the living and the dead. Friends, do you see this contrast between what some thought or they think about Jesus and what Peter confesses to be true about who Jesus is? Because the difference is a matter, it's a matter between life and death of going to heaven or of going to hell. The contrast is as great as the difference between given, being given the keys of the kingdom of heaven or being locked out of heaven for all eternity. So let me make this as crystal clear as I possibly can. What you confess about who Jesus is, what you believe about who Jesus is, matters more than anything in this world. More than anything in this world. Because there is no other issue that's more important than the identity of who Jesus is. There's nothing as important as who Jesus is in answering this question. Who do you say I am? Your children are important. Your jobs are important. Your family is important. But none of that can compare to the importance of answering this question, who do you say that I am? Nothing. And if there's anything that you can be sure of in this life, if there's anything you can be sure of, it is who Jesus is, that he is fully God, that he's fully divine, and that he has come to save sinners like you and me. And that he is our Lord and Savior. Because the consequences of not believing that, the consequences of believing that he's only a prophet, that he's demon-possessed, or that he's only a good teacher, or a good rabbi, the scriptures tell us they are quite horrifying. If you think of hell and what we've heard about it in Matthew, or what we will find out more about it, the consequences of not believing Jesus is Lord divine, they are horrifying. And that's what the scriptures tell us. Friends, what I'm about to say, this goes for me too. This isn't just something I'm saying to you, but this applies to me. But I think if our confessions about who Jesus is, if they were deeper convictions or deeply held beliefs, I think we'd be having more gospel conversations with friends and family. Maybe we'd be inviting more coworkers, maybe more neighbors to church. And possibly, maybe more of the seats around us might be filled. 
I don't know. But how deep is your conviction who Jesus is? You see, for those who don't know Jesus, confessing that Jesus is Lord, that's the issue at hand here. But for those of us who, but those of us who have grown up in the faith, the issue is, has your confession of who Jesus is turned into a deep conviction? Do you believe it? Are you talking about it? Is it more true than anything in your life? Are you living like that? Jesus knows the disciples believe, but he's sharpening their conviction of who he is by showing them this contrast. Because he knows there are trials, there are difficulties that lie ahead of them, which there will be. And for many of us, there will be too. And if these disciples, if they aren't completely committed and sold out for Jesus, they're not going to persevere through all the difficulties. And they're not going to make much of an impact for God's glory if they're not completely sold out and convicted about who Jesus is. Because Jesus knows that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it, they are few. But why is it that those who enter this narrow gate, why are they so few? Well, it's because many people today commit the same errors that people of Jesus' day did. They think things about Jesus like he's just a good prophet, right? A lot of world religions think that Jesus is just a prophet. Sometimes people think he's crazy, he's demon-possessed, right? He's a lunatic. Or three, he's just a good guy, good moral teacher. We fall in this world, day and age, we fall a lot into the same errors that people of Jesus' day did. You know, the funny thing about these options is our Jesus doesn't give you the luxury to believe all these things about him, right? He doesn't in his text. And if one was to simply just take a few moments to look through the New Testament, you would see that what Jesus says about himself limits you. You can believe essentially one or two things. You can believe he's son of the living God, he is who he claims to be, or he's crazy, he's a raving lunatic. Those are kind of your options. So C.S. Lewis even talks about that in his book, Mere Christianity, that he's a, uh, a liar, lunatic, or Lord, right? Jesus is crazy, or he is who he says he is. Does your conviction, does it line up with that? And the reason why I say this is because does a prophet or a rabbi say things like this? A good guy would just say something like this? I and the Father are one? And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began? Does a prophet or a rabbi say something like, From now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God? And then the Pharisees, they ask, well, are you the Son of God? And he, being Jesus, replied, he said, You are right in saying that I am. You see, we must develop a deep conviction that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he's the Son of the living God, or you got to believe he's crazy, he's a raving lunatic. Those are the options. And that's one reason I, in a, a small way, appreciate the deep conviction of those whom I greatly disagree with. Those who are involved and believe in the new atheist movement. Why do I say this? It's because these people, they're militant about their beliefs. Because they believe with deep conviction that they are right 
that their faith and their own logic and, and reasoning, that it's full of passion and zeal and conviction, which it is. This group, they only, atheists, I think as a, as a whole, not including this group, they only comprise about 2% of the world's population. But yet their message has far transcended their actual sphere of influence. Why? Because they believe with conviction. They believe it to be true. And it's unfortunate that they believe the latter, that Jesus is crazy, that he's a raving lunatic, because that simply is not true. But I think we, oftentimes, I think we can be lukewarm Christians when it comes to our convictions about the Christian faith and about who Jesus truly is. And I think we can learn something from this passionate group. For many of them, though they are few and completely misguided, they believe with conviction. And I think that's something for us to think about. Well, as an application, I simply, I just want to ask you these two questions for you to think about. The first one is, do you have a deep conviction about who Jesus is? Do you? And if so, are you living in such a way that's consistent with your confession? When Peter, excuse me, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter confessed his belief in Jesus, and he did it with conviction. And Jesus responded to Peter by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Church, this is the second sermon point, key instructions. Let me ask you all a, a quick question. Have you ever been given a key and then been given instructions of what to do with this key? Um, if you've worked the cash register at a retail store with an overzealous manager, then you probably have. I know I have. Um, I used to work for Pacific Sunwear, uh, which is actually just right around the corner, or PacSun as they like to call it now, because apparently abbreviating uh, everything now in our uh, day and age is somehow totes cool, so they call it PacSun. And um, I worked there, and I was given a key to the cash register, and when I was given this key, I was given instructions regarding its purpose. And I honestly thought, maybe my manager thought that I wasn't five anymore. Um, but nonetheless, he began to um, give me this key. And he began to tell me that this was a privilege. Um, and that what I do with the key, it matters. And so as I was given it, that I could also um, open and close the cash drawer when I had this key. Which I knew that. But he wanted to emphatically make sure that I knew that having this key could open and close it. I think he was getting at seeing if I was a person who liked to steal things. Um, but essentially, I was gently reminded that this key was a privilege. And handling the key properly or improperly, right, when and how I opened or closed the cash drawer, it had lasting effects. And it had lasting effects, right, if you know what I mean, that you're manager telling you this. And 
what we're about to hear about in our second part of the passage is very similar because we are given a certain set of keys and what we do with them, it matters. It really does. And we're given instructions when we're given these keys. For Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven from your father who is in heaven. And there are some key instructions that come with this set of keys. Well, the two questions that you would probably want to ask are, well, what are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? One. And two, what are the instructions that come with these keys? Well, let's look at these questions together. Number one, what are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, for starters, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are clearly not man-made keys because Jesus says this. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So just by looking at verse 17, we can deduce that these keys, they are not physical, tangible objects. All right? These keys must have something to do with Peter's confession about Jesus being Lord. Because that's what preceded Jesus' response here in verse 17. And if we combine Peter's confession with Jesus' statement in verse 17, then we can see that this confession that Jesus is Lord, it has not originated from the mind of Peter himself, but it was divinely imputed to Peter from the Father who is in heaven. So it would seem that this deeply held conviction about Jesus being the Son of the living God, which it only comes from the Father, this is the answer to our first question. Right? What are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? The key of the kingdom of heaven, it is the gospel. The key of the kingdom of heaven is the gospel. It's the message that Jesus is Lord. It's the revelation that Jesus' identity, his power, his majesty, and the recognition that we are great sinners who need him. This is the key that the Father gives us. It's not from yourselves, despite what many of us think or those outside these walls think. It is given to you. Now we know that the gospel message, which proclaims Jesus as Son of the living God, is the key of the kingdom. So now we can ask our second question. What are the instructions that come with these keys? Well, the key instructions, they come from verse 19. And verse 19 says this. Follow along with me. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As brothers and sisters who are in union with Christ, we are called to proclaim this gospel message. Because we have the keys, and we want others to have them too. So what is it meant by these instructions saying, whatever is loosed or opened on earth shall be then opened in heaven? Well, they mean that whoever accepts the gospel here on earth and confesses Jesus as their Lord and personal Savior, they will be accepted at the gates of heaven. And in reverse, whatever is bound or closed on earth shall be closed in heaven. Meaning that if someone rejects the gospel here on earth and does not confess Jesus as Lord, then he or she who has rejected the gospel and rejected Jesus will be also rejected at the gates of heaven when they die. The instructions that we have here in verse 19, they also have church polity implications, meaning church government. 
And we're going to be talking about discipline here. For instance, when someone accepts the gospel and confesses Jesus as their Lord and Savior, well, we as elders, we examine their confession. And if we find it to be credible, then they are welcomed as brothers and sisters in this church, in covenant community with us. They become members. And in reverse, if a brother or sister who's already in the covenant community, meaning they hold membership in the church, is living in such a way that is so egregiously sinful and out of accord with the scriptures, and that they are not repentant in the slightest after the steps of Matthew 18 have been taken, then this individual can also be excommunicated from the church. Or in other words, we as elders are claiming that due to great and weighty evidence over a period of time gathering it, we find that there is an unrepentant heart, that there is great sin, that this individual, they don't really believe. And they essentially were saying that if they continue in this unbelief and hard heart, they will be locked from the gates of heaven. That's what we are saying. And church, we've had to do this before. It's not a fun thing at all. It takes up time and resources. But it's something scriptures call us to do when we're given the keys of the kingdom. And these keys of the kingdom, they call us to exercise the power of church discipline in cases of extreme sin and unrepentant hearts. We also look at Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 to find guidelines about these things, but the scriptures call us to them. But I will say as a caveat, in rare circumstances, when church discipline is carried out in great error, it is possible for an individual to be unjustly excommunicated, and in that case, the Lord gladly welcomes them at the gates of heaven when that is done in great error. But for most who are rightly excommunicated, it is not good for them because if they maintain their unrepentant heart until the day they die, the gates of heaven, they will be closed. So as fellow key holders, tell others about Jesus. Remind others that their sins, they do have in fact a price. And they need to repent before a holy, righteous God. But also tell them the good news of the gospel, right? That there is one who came to pay the penalty for them to pay the price for their sins. And this is the part where you guys come into play, and I do too. Ask the Lord to help you with this. I know many of us struggle with this, but ask the Lord to help you tell others. Because God is delighted to hear a prayer like that and to answer a prayer like that. To be asked, hey, Lord, I want to proclaim your gospel message. Well, another instruction that Jesus gives us, and he gives it specifically here to his disciples in verse 20. And this is what it is, the last instruction here. It says, tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this last instruction, it's specifically for Jesus' disciples with whom he's speaking with. That is, Jesus' first century disciples, they were not to reveal who Jesus was to others just yet. The reason this last instruction doesn't apply to us today is because we have the full gospel picture of who Jesus is and we know of his death and resurrection, that he rose victoriously on the third day. The reason this last instruction was only for Jesus' disciples in this case 
It was due to the fact that they did not yet have the full gospel picture of Jesus' death and resurrection just yet. But they would very soon. Nor was it time Jesus was also saying to instigate the Pharisees and Sadducees into crucifying Jesus before his time. Because it wouldn't be long, honestly, when, the Jesus, when Jesus' disciples would know that Jesus is Lord, Son of the living God. That they would see him in all his power and majesty. And that they would claim these things very true and very powerfully. We see later on, obviously we have the four Gospels, that they proclaimed these things with conviction. They believed it and they lived by it. And they did that, confessed it, and had conviction about who Jesus was. They told others when it was the right time. But for us, the right time is now because we have the full picture. I don't know about you, but don't you, don't you want to be long to be used by God in meaningful and powerful ways in this earth with the time that you have here? Right? To taste and see God's glory unfold right in front of you. Don't you want to see that for yourselves, for your children? You know, it's an amazing thing to be a witness, to be a part of the gospel work, changing people's hearts, changing people's minds, changing their entire lives. And what a pleasure that is that we have if we have the keys of the kingdom, if we have the gospel. And if you can say, yes, Jesus is Lord, then guess what? You have that opportunity to taste and see these things, to have the void that's in your life filled more powerfully than anything you could ever try to put in there. That's the power of the gospel. But I know dark realities that we... We live in a dark world, and the realities of living in this world, they creep in, they rob us of our joy, of our passion, right? Of our convictions, of what is true and powerful. And I'm simply telling you, this passage is a gentle reminder. Do not believe the lies of this world, because there are many, and you will be told them many times. Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a good teacher. He's not a raving lunatic. And the power of knowing who Jesus is and proclaiming that word to others, despite what you might think, is more powerful than any nuclear warhead on this earth. I do not say that lightly. For what other thing in this world has the power to change hearts and minds of millions, possibly even billions, of believers who have walked this earth since it was created. What else has the power to change the heart and the mind of so many people? Nothing. And honestly, that's why I'm excited to finish our passage with verse 18. This is our last sermon point. It's titled, The Power of God's Word. Read with me. Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, they shall not prevail against it. Now what an epic line for Jesus to say, right? And the gates of hell shall not even 
not even close, prevail against my words. I know many of you, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, and you know the powerful speech that William Wallace gives, I was thinking through when I was reading this line, I was like, man, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been a wise thing for William just to add like a line like that? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Into his already awesome speech. I would have loved to hear that. But Jesus says, upon this rock, my church will be built. And nothing can stand in my way. Let me tell you, church, that is good stuff. However, the question that you want to ask before we get to this awesome part of the gates of hell, not being able uh, to withstand the gospel, is who... Or what is this rock upon which Jesus' church is built? So that's what we want to look at. Well, there's a play on words here in the Greek. For the name Peter and rock, they're kind of like the same thing. So the question is, is Peter this rock with whom Jesus' church is built? Or is it someone or something else in which Jesus' church is built? Well, is Peter this rock? The answer is both yes and no. Is Peter the sole individual with which Jesus' church is built? The answer is no. But is Peter a part of the group with which Jesus built his church? The answer is yes. So who else is a part of this group then? Well, the answer is that Jesus' church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. These are God's words given to the prophets and to the apostles. Jesus gave them to them, and they're about Jesus. This, on these words, will Jesus' church be built. On Jesus will his church be built. The Bibles that you have are the words from the prophets and apostles. These are God's words which are more powerful than any modern-day weapon. They truly are, despite what sometimes many of us think or believe. And it is on these holy inspired words from the prophets and apostles that Jesus will build his church. And not even the gates of hell will be able to defend the offensive onslaught of the gospel which was proclaimed by the prophets and the apostles. And guess what, church? Now by us, because we have God's word. And God's word is powerful. In other words, God's word is the foundation upon which his church is built. And not even Satan can thwart the progress of the gospel, changing people's hearts. For if God can change the heart of a man, a sadistic man like Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a serial killer, who was a pedophile and a cannibal, If this gospel, if these words can change the heart of a man like that, then guess what? I think those gospel words can change the hearts and minds of your family members, of your co-workers, of your neighbors, and those whomever you come across. Because they changed his heart and his mind. And they can change yours and they can change your friends. But maybe you're thinking, that's that's great. God's word is powerful. But what What does it have to do with me? Well, it means you have the most powerful weapon at your disposal. And it means that in in order to accomplish the work that God has called for you to do, because he has called you to a work on this earth, it means that you are to tell your friends 
about this most powerful message, about who Jesus is. So tell your friends, your coworkers, your family members. Because God's word will accomplish exactly that which God tends it to when it is spoken. Because it's either going to soften the heart of those whom you tell, or it's going to harden the hearts of those whom you tell. It'll either open up the gates of heaven for those who receive the keys of the kingdom, or it will lock the gates of heaven for those who reject the keys of the kingdom. Friends, as your confession develops into a deeper conviction, know that there is absolutely nothing that can stop the progress of God's word and the purpose for which he has sent it to do. There is nothing that can stop it. Because the gospel, when spoken, always accomplishes the work that it's set out to do. So let me honestly just encourage you, if you have the keys, if you have them, don't hide them like many of us do so often. If you got the keys, if you got the gospel, if you can answer the question, who do you say that I am, do not hide the keys. Share them with others. Because Jesus is the Son of the living God. And because it is only a confession that Jesus is Lord, and only that which will open up the gates of heaven. And if there are those whom you tell who reject Jesus, then you can remind them, and you can do this gently, that what they reject here on earth has eternal consequences. For the gates of heaven, they will be locked to all those who reject the gospel here on earth. But church, though all of us, you and me, we are great sinners, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, guess what? We get the keys of the kingdom. We get that. The gates of heaven, they are open and unlocked for us for eternity. Church, that is grace. And that is a message worth telling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are faithful. Lord, to all of your people. Lord, we sin against you, Lord, so often and so frequently. But yet, Lord, you are so merciful and kind and gracious, Lord, slow to anger with us. Lord, we want to tell others about Jesus. It's not easy. And I understand that because I struggle too. But Lord, continue, Lord, to develop a deeper conviction of who you truly are. Lord, so that we would not care what other people think, what other people say about us. But Lord, we would care more importantly about what you think about us and what, Lord, we can do to please you rather than pleasing others. Lord, this is not easy to do, but Lord, what a joy to see your power change hearts and minds, Lord, when we confess that you are Lord, when we tell others out of our own conviction that you are Lord and then it changes their hearts and minds. What a privilege it is to see that work, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this church, that we would proclaim, Lord, your word with power and with confidence. 
because, Lord, it is the most important thing, Lord, that we have. And it is the most precious gift that we have ever been given. Thank you, Lord, for the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which you have given to us through your son, Jesus. We love you and we thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.